You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching from The Greatest Story is entitled Promised Land. Good evening, friends. Welcome to week six. We are officially over halfway. Can you even believe it? It's crazy. (laughs) It's been such a joy to be with you this semester. So, to begin with tonight, I'd like you to flip back to the first page of your homework, okay? I want to make sure that you got the answers to that first question. This is where I had you look up some references to determine what the kingdom of heaven actually consists of. We'll call these the three P's of kingdom. There's another one coming later, but all things in due time. Okay, so what did you determine for number one? Presence. Okay, I agonized over these references to to make sure that it would be clear. And uh, this is, of course, referring to the presence of God himself, right? The most important and precious aspect of the kingdom. What about number two? People, yes. This is a holy nation, a people set apart for God. Plus, uh, just logically, a kingdom is kind of lame if there's no people to rule. So, uh, what about number three? Place, awesome. All right, so yes, we're talking about literal settlement into a place, and this is what we're going to unpack tonight. So I've got to give you a little background story. The first year that I taught third grade Sunday school, I came to a lesson in Matthew somewhere, and it was about Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of heaven. And I thought, how in the world am I going to explain this to a bunch of nine-year-olds? With kids, it can be tempting to just kind of skirt through certain topics at like a high level, you know what I'm saying? Like they're asking a million questions and you're just kind of giving vague answers to pacify them and keep going. Um, But my commitment to these kids is to do everything I possibly can to make the big truth attainable so that they can actually grasp it. So I knew if they would really press me and ask me questions on this, I was toast. (laughs) And all of that to say, it forced me to find words. We toss um, phrases like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven around all the time. But can we actually explain what it is? I have since experimented with groups of adults, and I've found more often than not, we don't really have the verbiage. We kind of have an idea, but it's hard to articulate. So it just made me realize we need to start this conversation about the kingdom of heaven long before the Gospels. Otherwise, Jesus appears on the scene and he's like, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we're like, okay. You know, and it just kind of falls flat if we don't have all the context building up for it. All that we've been studying so far is within this context of kingdom. It's just one of those things you kind of have to work through instead of just reading a definition. So this isn't the last time we'll be looking at it either. So to keep this simmering in your brains, God's intention for creation, to fill the earth with his glory by establishing his kingdom among and through his people. So in the past two weeks, we dealt with the concept of people, right? The people group set apart for the Lord. And of course, his presence dwelling among them. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit more about this idea of establishing kingdom, And specifically, we're going to look at it in terms of place, an actual place. So in human terms, we understand that any governing authority has a locality, right? So mayors have towns, governors have states, presidents have countries, and kings have kingdoms. 
So a locality is just an area of land that's marked off by boundaries, and there's a society of people living together, and they are under the authority of a ruler or a law of some sort. You didn't know you were going to get social studies at WBF too. <laughs> that's all there is. I don't have anything else. <laughs> all right, next question. What is the type of government called where there is a king? Monarchy, right. Okay, now back to Bible study. When we talk about God being our king, the term is actually not monarchy, but theocracy. Theocracy. It means a form of government in which God, or a deity of some sort, is recognized as the supreme civil ruler. So there's, it's the same idea as monarchy, one individual, but instead of it being a human being, it's God. In this theocracy of God's kingdom, there is a society of people within a locality. So in the early stages of God's redemptive plan, the place was the geographic nation of Israel. That's why promised land was so important. But as we've talked about, the goal was never to be stagnant. They were to overflow their borders and to fill the whole earth. During the time of the Israelites, Many of the leaders of the pagan nations around them um, would, would uh, prove their authority or essentially mark their territory by erecting a statue of themselves in their locality. This graven image literally symbolized their dominion. Yet God commanded his people to make no graven images. Even ones that would be representing him. Now, why do you think that is? It's because he doesn't need it. Where is his image portrayed? In us, right? He has stamped his image on humanity. So, if God's jurisdiction or locality is represented by his image, his image bearers in this case, where does that mean his kingdom is? Everywhere, right? The kingdom will fill the whole earth. So follow this thread of God's desire to establish his kingdom, particularly through the lens of land. And then we'll tie it back into our lives and we'll get to some really practical stuff later. So first of all, we have Adam and Eve in the paradise of Eden. This was the beginning of God's kingdom on earth. God's presence with his people in a place. They were rightly oriented to God and to each other. They were tasked with that mission of dominion and expansion. Things were off to a great start. But when they stepped out from under God's authority, chose autonomy, doing what was right in their own eyes, the kingdom fell to pieces and they were thrust from their beautiful homeland. The next time we see a specific mention of land is with Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham. Not only would he father a people group and be a conduit of God's blessing for the whole world, but he would also receive a homeland, a new sort of paradise, if you will, where God's people could be planted and they would dwell with him. Every time God reinstated his covenant to the next generation, to Isaac and to Jacob, he would repeat this. He would reiterate this promise to the point where Joseph is on his deathbed in Egypt and he's saying, take my bones with you when God brings you up out of this land. He's going to take you home where he said he would. And I want to be buried at home. Faith in this very promise. 
In the next covenant through Moses, we talked about this last week. God enters a corporate covenant with all of Israel. So he revealed his heart through the law. He made provisions for that holiness divide so he could dwell among them. And in Exodus 23, there's this whole section about how God is going to go before them in their conquest of Canaan. They're fresh out of slavery at this point, all gathered around the foot of Mount Sinai, and God is reiterating this promise to them. This is no longer a pipe dream. The fulfillment is right around the corner. Well, that generation never stepped foot in the promised land, as you probably recall. I had you read a recap of this story in Deuteronomy 1, the originals found in Numbers 13 and 14. And it turns out their fear of man was greater than their fear of the Lord. And though he had proven himself to them time and time again, it was their lack of faith in this particular promise that earned them 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and ultimately the death of that entire generation. But alas, with Joshua, we finally see fulfillment of this promise of land, of settlement, of home. I love the way that Joshua 21, 43, and 45 states this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land he had swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. After all of that displacement and suffering and wandering and waiting, they finally arrived. This holy nation has finally a place to put down roots and to dwell with their God. In the next covenant with David, more to come on that next week, we see the continued honing in of God's promises. And the thing I love about the Davidic covenant is just this increasing level of permanency. 2 Samuel 7.10 says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And as with Abraham, God goes on to promise offspring, except this time he says there's going to be a descendant that comes from you that will sit on your throne forever. His purposes will be established, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Now, it's David's son Solomon that builds the temple, a permanent house for the Lord in their capital city of Jerusalem. And like I said last week, this was like the high point. All those boxes were checked. God's presence with his people in their place. If you read those chapters of Solomon's temple dedication where the glory of the Lord just descends visibly to inhabit the temple, to dwell among them. It's like, how could it get any better than this? But it turns out the human kings of Israel were sinful to their core just like we are. Most of them did not rule in godly dominion, but instead they chose autonomy, what was right in their own eyes. This era of the kings eventually leads to exile, when God's people are carried off as prisoners of war, his dwelling place is destroyed, and that precious homeland is overtaken. Yet all through the era of the kings, before, during, and after exile, God is sending prophets to call his people to repentance, and to remind them of his kingdom promises. 
The Old Testament books of prophecy contain tons of warnings, right, about all the doom and gloom that's coming to them. But there's also so many promises about a future restoration, that there's a true and better reality to come. This isn't the end. Some of the people eventually return home to Jerusalem after the exile. And so they, you know, they rebuild the walls, they rebuild the temple, they try to repair things, try to put their lives back together. But things are not the same. Because they may be back in their place, but the Lord's presence didn't return. And so this is just a partial restoration. It's nothing like the prophets had foretold. And their life continued like this trying to be the Lord's people, but always under the dominance of a world power and enemy nation until the time of Christ. Do you see why they were so expected that the Messiah would bring political deliverance? The oppression of Rome was a far cry from the glory of the David and Solomon days. But the very first thing Jesus says at the start of his ministry is not, take up your sword, let's fight for the kingdom. But he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In all of Jesus' teachings on the kingdom, he's trying to communicate the greater spiritual reality. He who has ears, let him hear. This wasn't a political movement. God was on mission to restore all of his kingdom creation. But so much more of this beautiful, so much of this beautiful mystery was veiled at the time. Even after Jesus had, had gone to the cross and resurrected and was back with his disciples afterwards, in Acts 1 6, they're, they're gathered around. It's right before he ascends back to heaven. And his disciples are like, So, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like they're still asking after everything they've seen. And Jesus says, It's not for you to know. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. The church of Christ is a global kingdom. So much more than they could understand in that moment. Now in our big gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, we're headed for that final stage of glorification. And at our point in history, the kingdom of God seems a bit abstract, or if nothing else, just very spiritual in a sense. Definitely more so than the Israelites' understanding. But God's promises will find concrete fulfillment when Jesus returns. Have you ever thought about this? Growing up, I never really understood the final end cap of the Bible in Revelation 21-22. I just assumed... Okay, well, we just go to heaven when we die. We just kind of hang out there forever. But the Bible actually states that heaven and earth will come together in a glorious new creation. And it's there that God will establish his kingdom in fullness. Revelation 7 gives us a little preview that that people will include every tribe, every tongue, every nation. A global kingdom without borders full of the Lord's glory. I love how Isaiah 11, 9 and 10 states this. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day, the root of Jesse, Christ himself, will stand as a banner for the people. 
and the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. As we look back over the scriptures, we can see the parallelism of these promised lands. Eden and Canaan are meant to leave us longing for the true and better homeland. Each of the previous promised lands were lacking. In the new heavens and earth, we will finally experience shalom. Do you know what that is? Peace, right. We generally translate it peace. It's a Hebrew word. The Hebrew concept includes wholeness, completeness, security, and permanency. Doesn't that sound like exactly what we've been talking about and exactly what our hearts long for? The city coming down out of heaven in Revelation 21 is called the New Jerusalem. And the word Jerusalem means city of peace. The last half of the name Salem is a derivative of shalom. In all of the ways that the first Jerusalem was incomplete, the new Jerusalem will not be. And why? It's because Jesus Christ, our Prince of Peace, our Prince of Shalom, has restored our peace with God through his atoning sacrifice. The kingdom of God among man is only possible because of what Christ has done, and in him we have a glorious inheritance. Everything about life since the fall, the sin, the brokenness, the suffering, the death, will be done away with at the final destruction of Satan in Revelation 20. When all that comes to an end, what are we left with? Remember the beauty and the abundance of Eden and the promises of what Canaan could have been for them. When you strip all the nasty away, you're just left with the pure goodness of God. Finally, shalom, no more brokenness or pain. Finally able to enjoy the Lord, rightly oriented to him and others. This is life the way he intended from the beginning. So what can we glean about this shalom living from the temporary promised lands? What might this be like? There's three elements that come to mind for me. And they are communion with God, work, and rest. Okay, communion, work, and rest. We've touched on all of these briefly, but we're going to go deeper tonight. They were all there in Eden. We have them now in part, and they will be in their glorified state in the new heavens and earth. So how does this inform our current reality, and how do we live within God's design even now? We've got to start with communion with God, the most important piece. God with us meets our deepest longings because it's what we were designed for. What was very good in Eden will be whole and complete in the new heavens and new earth. So in the here and now, that means that we enjoy God. We commune with him through the spirit that indwells us. And what a gift he is, the deposit guaranteeing everything else that's coming. I want to spend a little more time on these matters of work and rest. So every single one of you work today, whether it was for an employer or for your household. I want you to think back over your day. Did it seem like fruitful labor or frustrated toil? How many of you would say it averaged out to be more like fruit, fruitful labor? Yikes, not that many. Okay, a couple of you. 
And what about frustrated toil? Yes. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. I definitely had both today. Like, they're both there every day. This is our reality. And even on the hardest days, though, we have to remember the truth of God's word, that work is not inherently bad. Do you remember the work of Eden? We uncovered this in God's mandate to Adam and Eve. I keep saying it. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. The work of expansion and dominion existed before sin, and it was good. It's a privilege that God invited his image bearers to partner with him. But things changed drastically when humans fell into sin. If you remember, God's curses in Genesis 3 were not against Adam and Eve as people. It was against that work of dominion and expansion. So the reason some days, all days, feel like frustrated toil in some manner is because they are. In fact, some of your full-time jobs are pushing back on the effects of sin in this broken world. But God's intention hasn't changed. We still have this responsibility and privilege of bearing his image in the world. So we're going to get practical. These truths have real-life implications when you situate yourself in God's story. All right, so we're going to get to those worksheets on your table one side says dominion, and one side says expansion. And I have put some additional descriptions at the top that just kind of flesh out the concept, and hopefully that gets your mind rolling. Now, this is not meant to be uber spiritual. Okay, you don't get bonus points for being spiritual right now. I want you to be super practical. For example, washing your dishes is an act of dominion over creation because you are destroying the harmful bacteria that could make you sick. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so I'm gonna give you about eight minutes or so, okay? Work on this for your life and help each other out at your tables, okay? Go ahead. Alrighty, I'm gonna call you back. How did you do? Okay. <laughs> Does everybody have something written down on their paper? Okay. No intervention needed then. We're good. I'd encourage you to continue working at this with your reflection questions this week. Your work in this physical world matters. Anything you set your mind or hand to is kingdom work. Have you thought about work in eternity? Remember, it was there pre-fall. I can't point you to an exact verse that just says this in black and white, but the more that I just study the big picture, I really do believe that we're going to do some sort of work of expansion and dominion in the kingdom of the new heavens and earth. And imagine what it would be like to work without the brokenness of sin. It's really good. The idea is... A little different, I know, because we typically and rightfully think of eternity with God as rest. The problem is, is that our perception of rest is so human, okay? I don't believe that the rest of eternity just means sleeping until noon or getting a pedicure, if you know what I mean. That's not what God's after. So we need to recover the biblical understanding. How has God revealed true rest? 
as you looked at in your homework, God builds this idea out over the whole course of scripture. And so I think it's helpful to think of it in two ways. We have the practice of rest, and then there's the, the greater or the deeper symbolism. The rhythm of work and rest is woven into the very fabric of creation. God's example, right? He created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. He didn't need to rest. He wasn't tired. But he set that example for us and wove that into the fabric of creation. I think he knew that we would need it post-fall when work would become toilsome. God then commanded his people in the law to observe an official Sabbath day when they would cease from their labor. This was to be a sign of God's covenant with his people. And do you know what the consequence was for breaking the Sabbath? Death. That's not something we would consider a capital offense. But the consequence for breaking the Sabbath was death. So, if nothing else, that should get our attention. What is God's heart in the Sabbath? It's not a command that explicitly transfers to the New Testament. But I want to convince you tonight of why and how this principle still applies. It doesn't take a lot to see why our sinful selves still need this. So if I were to tell you to take a day off, one personality type would be like, yeah, goodbye responsibility. Hello, Netflix. You'd be fine with it. The other personality type on the other end of the spectrum would be like, are you kidding me? I can't take a day off. Everything's going to fall apart. Do you know which one you are? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Regardless of where you're at on the continuum, the point is, is that the Sabbath confronts us in our sin. Okay? It invites us to flourish in submission under our Creator. This is for His glory and our good. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you probably have some, shall we say, associations regarding Sabbath. Was it presented to you as a blessing or as an oppressive rule? or just tossed out as being totally irrelevant. I was reading one of the Little House on the Prairie books to my kids a while back, and in the story, their family would celebrate Sabbath on Sundays. Paul was a farmer, and so he wouldn't work in the fields on Sundays. But the thing that struck me was the rules for the kids. They were expected to be quiet and still and somber. They hated Sundays. In fact, the one day they snuck out to go sledding and they got in trouble. <laughs> and I read this part and I'm like, oh, and I just put the book down and I was like, guys, we got to talk about this. Is this God's heart for the Sabbath? So imagine tonight <laughs> we're setting the book down and we're going to talk about God's heart for rest. So first of all, God gives us Sabbath to be holy and set apart. How many of you have ever driven to Chick-fil-A on a Sunday only to realize they weren't open? We have. In fact, one time, friends and I walked all the way across this massive airport. Newsflash, they're closed on Sundays in airports too. And I was kind of like torn, you know. I'm like, oh, I love the Sabbath. I wanted some waffle fries, you know. But the point being, their dark storefront looks really different than all the other places around them. But on a personal level, you got to think about what this looks like for you, okay? There isn't a set of rules contrary to what the Pharisees taught and contrary to maybe what you were taught. How does your heart align to God's in the activities that you would choose to do or not choose to do 
on a day of rest? That's the diagnostic question that I ask myself. How does my heart align to the Lord's? And secondly, this is a big one. I'm sorry, I missed that first one. Um, The second one, this is a big one for me. To acknowledge that we are finite creatures and we have limits, that we are not the sustainer of the universe. You know what it feels like to just be so pressed by the demands of life, whether that's circumstances outside of your control or expectations you're putting on yourself. But you could just keep going round the clock, 24-7, until you are just spent and completely burnt out. Or you could say, I need to rest. I've got to stop. The rhythm of Sabbath encourages you to have the humility to admit that you can't do it all. Third, the Sabbath tests our faith in God's provision. Do you remember when God fed the Israelites manna in the wilderness? They had to trust him to provide enough the day before. Because when they woke up the seventh morning, there's no bread on the ground. They were to rest and rely on his provision. Additionally, I think of the offerings of the first fruits in the Old Testament. They were to bring the first fruits of their harvest as an offering to the Lord. This was literally what they needed to feed their families. Like, what if the crops experienced drought or disease that year? Would there be enough? And it's as if God was saying, bring me your first and best, and will you trust me to provide? Now for us, it's less about relying on our gardens to feed our families. Mine would have starved by now. (laughs) But it's more about our time. So just like giving a tithe of our finances to the Lord, so the Sabbath is like a tithe of time. God says, Bring me your first and best. Will you trust me to provide when it feels like there are not enough hours in the week? What might it look like to manage our time and wisdom and to leave the rest in his hands? And next, to enjoy God's blessings. This is what legalism is missing. His commands are not burdensome. They are life. God bestows countless blessings on his children. What does it mean for you to enjoy God's gifts in a way that promotes worship to the giver of those gifts? And lastly, Sabbath is meant to instill a hunger for the true and better rest to come. And here's the symbolism. The promised land of Canaan was called a place of rest for Israel. They had to work We literally fight to conquer the land and settle, and then they got to experience the rest. The promised land meant peace and security, abundance, prosperity, all the blessings of the Lord just emanating from his presence among them. For us, there is no amount of work that we can do to earn entrance into that true and better promised land. Christ has finished the work of defeating the enemy, And offers rest for our souls. So in being joined to him, we can experience a taste of this shalom living now. Communion with God, purpose in our work, and rhythms of rest. Knowing that one day we will experience it in full in the true and better promised land. 
And unlike Canaan, that rest will be whole and complete and secure and not lacking anything. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for painting us such a beautiful picture in your word. Thank you for revealing yourself, for making yourself known to us. And we see your heart here, that you long for us to trust you as the creator, that we would submit and enjoy you as your beloved creatures. And so God, in all the practical ways that these truths play out in our life, I just pray that you would bring these things to mind as we go about our days, um, whether that be in fruitful labor or in frustrated toil, may we remember the context of your kingdom. It is here and now, and we look forward to what has come. And may all that those future promises hold, the beauty and the abundance and your very presence, may all of that just infuse our lives now with meaning that we would live on mission for you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your compassion that just meets us in our weakness and our frailty. And we just commit ourselves to you again. We pray that our lives would just bear your image well, that others would see you, and that we would just continue to grow in Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.